After reviewing the play, the call on the ice stands. We got to go. Okay, fellas, we are set to go. Let's go. We are kicking. Watch the blue. There we go. Yeah, baby. Number 47 for Boston. Both guys, five minutes each for fighting. Please move it. Please move it. Please move it. I got to admit this. I made a mistake. I think I'm bang on this. I'm bang on. Okay, gentlemen, play ball. Watch it here. Good checking, guys. Good play. It no longer feels to me, Josh, like hockey season has just started. It seems like we are deep into it already, even though there are still some using the phrase, it's early. It is early. I mean, the games are ticking off, the the penalties are piling up, the suspensions are happening, but it does still feel early, even though we've gotten through Canadian Thanksgiving, we're working towards American Thanksgiving. Todd, before we know it, it's going to be the Olympic break. I mean, assuming they do participate, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I guess there is that still small proviso that, uh, you know what, we've thought about it and maybe we aren't going to go. Well, let's, let's be optimistic, though, and still think positively that we are going to see country versus country best on best come next February. Yes, looking forward to it to get the best players out there and the best officials, which will be waiting to see who gets selected, who's in consideration, but always an exciting time of year from the IIHF standpoint when they see which NHL officials will make the cut and which international officials will also take part in the game. So waiting on that piece as the rosters come together for the teams, so do the officials for the games. We'll be looking forward to that in the months ahead. We have a number of interesting game and other situations to discuss from this past week. On this edition of the Scouting the Rest podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. And there are special savings available for you with our partnership through Manscaped. Use the code REFS, R-E-F-S, on your order. When you go to manscaped.com, you get 20% off your order and you get free shipping. And as I said, it seems like we're really moving along. October's coming to a close. We're into November now, or Movember for many that support the cause. I personally don't care for the mustache look. They they have the, the cheesy porn star look so often, no thanks. But you know what? If you're doing that, that's great. It's cool. It's a great cause. I understand. What you don't want to do is have that wild, out-of-control, clumpy mess of this kind of growth anywhere else during November or any other time. It's a bad look. It's not appealing. And there's an easy way to take care of it. Use the full line of Manscaped products. You get groomed, quick and efficient, looking good. Use the Lawnmower 4.0. It's amazing. Few quick passes, you're good. The Weed Whacker takes care of other grooming needs. Also available now, body wash, shampoo, conditioner. It's all awesome. And you know, it's not going to be long until we're into the holiday season. You'll be having to listen to your partner or spouse starting the inevitable discussion of what kind of gifts do you want? Send them to manscaped.com. Tell them to use our special discount code REFS. Not only will you get a great gift during the holidays, Josh, it is something that you will both be truly able to enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. Because even if your partner, if your family, if anyone else enjoys that you're participating in Movember and maybe they get a kick out of the mustache and the, the facial hair, but come the end of the month, you can shave it off. You can go back to being clean. You can get ready for the holidays and, and you have to have the right gear to do it. So worry about your face for sure. But uh, that's not the only part you need to worry about. 
Definitely. Go to manscaped.com, use the code REFS for your purchase, get 20% off, and get free delivery. Do it now. Also, please make sure you're following us on our social channels. For Josh, it's at Scouting the Refs on Twitter, on Instagram. For me, it's at Todd Lewis Sports on both Twitter and Instagram. Coming up on this week's episode, check your checking technique. This is getting expensive. The puck was mostly over the goal line. Is that close enough? And yes, refs make mistakes too. I think that sort of balls it up nicely. It does. Yeah, it, it, it's a, a nice little bundle there. A nice little early, early <laughs> gift bundle on the package we're delivering. <laughs> now, before we get into the hockey stuff, hockey is a wonderful game. We like to have some fun. We like to joke around while talking about rules and officiating and all the other things. But this past week was an extremely difficult and also an important and heartbreaking week at times that has, quite frankly, taken the focus away from the game on the ice and understandably so. The Chicago Blackhawks released the report of the incident that took place in 2010. Several people in that organization are out of jobs. Others are out of jobs as well. The Hawks, the league, the NHLPA have all apologized for not doing what was right and failing Kyle Beach, who was the victim at the center of the story. I just want to say that whoever does what this season on the ice or off doesn't matter to me right now because I believe that Kyle Beach is the MVP of this NHL season for his courage and his strength. And hopefully he and others that need it get the help, get the assistance and the justice that they deserve. They're Josh is really no easy way to transition from such an emotional story as this one, but as as we do know that Kyle and all others listening, we're listening, and we will help, we'll do whatever we can by doing the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well said, Todd, and uh, you know, an incredibly hard moment, a, a tough moment for him. Nice to see him speaking out. And of course, he he does have some officiating connections. His younger brother, Cody, is an NHL AHL official hired by the league this year. So Cody Beach eventually making his NHL debut, hopefully later this season as well. And, uh, you know, from an officiating standpoint, just just thinking what his mind and where his head has to be at with everything that's going on with his brother and, and just the, the strength and the courage uh, shown by Kyle here. Just uh, amazing. And, you know, we w- wishing him all the best. I know how hard this must be. Absolutely. And there will be more to this story, I'm sure, in the weeks ahead. Okay, let's shift the focus back onto the ice and a number of other incidents that took place this weekend. The players were busy with the e-transfers, I think, this week because there were a number of fines handed out over the last little while. Let's begin with Philadelphia Flyers forward Nicholas Obey-Kubel, who was fined just under $2,700, the maximum allowed, for kneeing Florida Panther Mason Marchment. On this play, Obey Kubel delivers what I think may have initially been intended as a body check, but clearly evolved into sticking out his leg, making contact with Marchant and his knee. He got a two-minute penalty for tripping. It clearly wasn't a trip, but this is what player safety is for. They've reviewed the incident. They impose the fine and the additional punishment that is deemed necessary in this case. 
Right. And like you said, that's that's how it should work. The officials see the leg on leg contact. They see the player go down. There's a change of possession on the play. So I can't argue with the tripping call that was made. And then when player safety gets to see it repeatedly from multiple angles, they can clarify and, and good for that fine there because you can't stick your leg out when you're missing a check. That's what happened here. And sometimes it's instinctive that you're just trying to get a body on a guy. Sometimes you're out to injure. I think this was just a, a drive by check that rather than miss, he looked to make some kind of contact. It just happened that it was not the legal kind of contact. More reflex than premeditated. Right. Okay. Also, Ryan Getzlaff of the Anaheim Ducks was fined $1,000 for a dangerous trip to Minnesota Wild forward Joel Erickson Eck. If you watch the video, the two are in the slot area. Getzlaff, who's certainly not shy about dishing out a little punishment here and there, used his stick to remove Erickson X's feet from the ice. He kind of swept them out from under him, from behind, a little message sent. There was no penalty called on this play, but the fine is the right thing in this case. It's a kind of a dirty, sneaky play. It was. I was actually surprised it was only a $1,000 fine and not a, a more significant one here. But I know some fans were clamoring for, well, you know, what's a dangerous trip? This was a slew foot. He took the guy's feet out. We well, did take his feet out for sure. And, and it was a trip and a dangerous one, hence the fine, but not a slew foot. When the league's looking for a slew foot, they're looking for that, that kicking motion down below along with the upper body pulling backwards, whether it's grabbing the jersey, whether it's pushing back with an elbow, something like that for it to be a slew foot. Both dangerous plays and certainly a huge risk for potential injury on this one. The same level as if it were a slew foot. I mean, using your stick to sweep the guy's skates out, uh, you're you're moving backwards quickly and your, your body's torquing back so that you're potentially getting you're potentially hitting your head on the ice. So as dangerous as a slew foot for sure. But in this case, not a slew foot, just I should say just but just a dangerous trip. I believe the fine amount is based on the salary of the player. Is that correct? It is. It, it, it is based on a player's salary and there's a, a max. So that's why we typically see the the $5,000 fines that are handed out as the, the maximum based on the player's salary. But, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel equitable. I, I, I understand making it uh, that sliding scale. But, you know, once you get above a certain point and it caps out at $5,000, it doesn't feel like it's quite as meaningful to certain guys. And for, for a guy like Getzlaff, who's earned so much over the course of his career, $1,000 still feels like a drop in the bucket. Right. Even though his salary is lower this year, he's, right. he's put a few bucks in his pocket. You're right. Now, the price for the dangerous trip from P.K. Subban of the Devils did hit the $5,000 mark. Higher salary, of course. Subban dumped Milan Lucic of the Calgary Flames this past week in a move that didn't really involve a stick. It was PK's leg behind Lucic as the two battled along the boards. It wasn't that Subban shoved Lucic in the chest, as you talk about with the slew foot in the textbook manner, but he did kind of maneuver him and dumped him on his keister. The social media world became enthralled, asking, is this a slew foot? The clickbait world goes crazy for this sort of stuff. It wasn't in the most blatant manner, but it did deserve some further punishment than the two-minute for tripping penalty. Absolutely. And, you know, again, it's it's a combination of things. It's for the slew foot. You're looking at the knocking the opponent's feet out. You're looking at pushing the upper body backwards. It's hard to see if Subban put that reverse leverage on Lucic's upper body or if it was just the kicking from underneath. I mean, Subban's moving forward down the board, so he's got some momentum behind him and easy to so sweep that out and knock Lucic on his keister there. But to me, the league has a little bit more leeway when it comes to the tripping penalty because they're not 
restricted by that upper body motion. So they, they can look at the trip and they can judge it on its merits and, and expand that. If they were only penalizing or only fining or suspending for a slew foot, it's a much more restrictive category. So I see where the league's coming from when it comes to these dangerous trips, that there are situations that apply that don't necessarily fit the definition of a slew foot, but that certainly deserve punishment. And, and I think that's what we saw in this case. To me, the, the biggest piece of the slew footing rule is how it's applied in game more than in suspensions because when you're when you're guilty and caught by the officials committing a slew foot during the game it's it's an immediate match penalty so you're gone for the game you get a match penalty and possibly further discipline in game you could be looking at just a tripping penalty that then player safety comes back to later so it's why we don't see it called that frequently and, it, and i think it's why the league enjoys having some potential for interpretation for those trips that are dangerous that may involve situations like we saw with Getzlaff or with Subban, but maybe don't have that backwards motion from the upper body. I think that's a really good explanation of what's involved to make it a textbook slew foot and why some other penalties are imposed. And I also like it that we both got a chance to use the word keister. <laughs> you know, when, word of the day, the word, word of the day today go. is keister. The Scouting the Refs podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. There are special savings for you with our Manscaped partnership. Use the code REFS when you go to manscaped.com for your order, receive 20% off, and you receive free shipping. Okay, game this week between the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Tampa Bay Lightning. This was an interesting one. The situation involved Penn's forward Brock McGinn, who fired the puck on goal, bounced off netminder Andre Vasilevsky. The official lost sight of the puck and blew the play dead. This happened just before McGinn banged the puck into the back of the net. It was referee Connor O'Donnell in the corner in his position facing the goaltender. He could not see that the puck was loose behind Vasilevsky. O'Donnell and Penn's coach Mike Sullivan had a chat about it. Everything calmed down pretty quickly. Nobody lost their stuff. It was an excellent example of everyone trying to do the right thing. Sometimes things just get missed. We all make mistakes. And this is one of those occasions where it happened. It was. And it's all about positioning. And not that the official was not in the right position. It just happened that the position he was in screened the puck for him. Now, had he been in the opposite corner, he would have clearly seen the puck. But had the play worked the opposite way, then he would have not been in an optimal position for that. So you can't be everywhere all the time. And it's easy for us to see it. It's easy for the fans at home to see it, even for the coach with the benches on that side of the ice to see that the puck was loose in the crease. You've got an official positioned properly where he is working his way towards the net and the goaltender obstructed his view of the puck. So it's an unfortunate situation. It's one where intent to blow comes in where the, the officials intending to blow or in this case did blow the whistle before the puck went in, despite the fact that it's loose. And I wanted to call out, Todd, that it's different from the continuous play that we saw a week or so back where the puck went into the net. You know, it had mm. the initial shot hit Vasilevsky and O'Donnell blew the whistle and the puck trickled over the line. That goal would have been allowed to stand because it would have been the product of a continuous play. But because the whistle sounded while a player was still acting on the puck to put it over the line, that's why we're looking at the goal waved off. So an, an unfortunate situation for the team, obviously, but an understandable one. This is where positioning is money. Uh, Paul Stewart said it many times that, that officials make their money at the net. You got to go to the net. You got to be in the right spot to see it. And even so, there are still going to be times when your view is obstructed and you lose sight of the puck. So we had O'Connor in the corner in the correct position and the other referee would have been in the neutral zone in the correct position. So if we want 
to be able to see everything all the time. Are you suggesting a third referee system? Well, if you wanted to have that kind of view, there would definitely be some benefits when it came to loose pucks around the net. That perspective, that overhead look uh, gives you an advantage that neither official on the ice have. And, you know, even if Jeanette, who is down in the neutral zone, even if he sees the puck loose, he wouldn't be blowing his whistle because there's nothing to blow at that point. And O'Donnell, who loses sight of the puck, blows his whistle down low. There's no way to have both officials coordinate that decision before the whistle sounds unless you take it out of their hands and move it upstairs. So uh, it would be a very controversial move, but I, I can see the benefits by visibility, but then we fall down that slippery slope, Todd, of, of how much do you take out of the on-ice officials' hands, and do you roll that into penalties? Mm, interesting. Okay, a little, a little more in technology a little bit later on in the podcast. There's the tease. Last week, we talked about the ingenuity of Calgary Flames forward Matthew Kachuk knocking the puck out of the air before it sailed over the glass trying to avoid a penalty. The officials, of course, saw it for what it was and imposed the correct call, which was interference on Kachuk from the bench. Now, they could have done the same thing in a game this past week to the Detroit Red Wings for the actions of equipment trainer Paul Boyer. Let me explain. In the game, Washington Capitals forward Evgeny Kuznetsov is rushing up the ice and trying to create a scoring chance as he passes by the Red Wings bench. Earlier in the shift, Wings captain Dylan Larkin had broken his stick and Boyer was quick on the mark and doing his job and dangling a new one over the boards for Larkin to collect as he pursued Kuznetsov up the ice. Boyer unintentionally clotheslined Kuznetsov and nullified the play, also caused the winger to lay on the ice and collect himself for a minute. It's weird, but again, I guess a penalty could have been imposed in this particular instance. It absolutely could have and should have been because we did have interference from the bench, however unintended it was. And I think, Todd, in all my years watching hockey, I don't recall this ever happening, which itself is amazing when we think of how many times the trainers have sticks available for guys as they're skating by the bench that that this hasn't happened before in this case no penalty called on the play it definitely should have been interference because you have a person on the bench and and the interference penalty rule 56-3 does apply to a player or any other person including non-playing club personnel on the bench who by means of stick or body interfere with the movements of the puck or any opponent on the ice and and that's precisely what happened here it was uh, unfortunate it was a good rush for the caps because netsoff was moving up ice quickly and uh, a great defensive play by larkin's stick before he even had it, <laughs> it was it, it well you snuffed out the <laughs> scoring chance which is what the objective is correct you know it, it, it you, you did and then it, it accomplished its goal. Well, it wasn't the goal, but it accomplished what I'm sure the Detroit Red Wings would have liked to do, which was to break up that scoring rush. But as much as it would have been interference, I would have absolutely loved to see referee Francis Sharon, who was on the play there, send the trainer into the penalty box, make him serve the two minutes for high sticking. <laughs> I think he'd have to wait until play stopped before returning to the ice. No, and crossing no, I, I, I want to see bench. him run across with his street shoes on. <laughs> now, also using his stick and definitely not in a manner that's acceptable was St. Louis Blues goaltender Jordan Binnington. We have seen the Blues goalie get riled up a few times during his career. The Avs and the Blues had a spirited game this past week. Nazem Kadri was the center of attention. This, of course, goes back to last year's playoffs when he had that nasty hit on Justin Falk of the Blues. Well, 
Kadri was kind of milling around in a scrum and Biddington was trying to stir up his team because they were down and he swung his stick kind of high and kind of near the head of Nazem Kadri. No contact made, but misconducts handed out. And this could have been rather nasty if there was contact made. This this was a dangerous swing of the stick. Absolutely. And it, it's funny because you see you know, a goaltender stick is obviously a lot different from a player's stick. And we know that the penalties are much more severe for a goaltender who punches a player using his blocker. I, I feel like the stick work from a goalie should be more severely penalized as well, because that's that's going to do a lot more damage. And a scary moment. Glad that there was no injury on the play, but oh, some excitement there, some, some fire. And uh, a disappointing moment for me when I realized that goaltender penalty minutes are not included in my fantasy hockey league, Tom. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> Come on. We need to write that wrong. <laughs> it was it was an interesting situation, though. And I think, you know, the the, the challenge with that is for, for these officials and the guys working the game last night, it was a, a relatively younger crew. You want to keep things under control and things were certainly heated. So handing out the misconducts, getting guys off the ice and and hoping to uh, to set the tone and, and calm things down a little bit is your goal out there, because that certainly coming off of that scene had the potential to escalate further. And it was, it was nice to see that it didn't. OK, a couple of other incidents that I want to get uh, get in from this past week, uh, Detroit and Chicago playing a game last week. Another example of a puck that was kind of kicked in, but the goal was allowed to stand. It was Tyler Bertuzzi. The play was reviewed and called okay. Bertuzzi's headed towards the net. He is attempting to stop as he approaches the crease. The puck went in off his skate. It deflected off a Hawks player and into the net, but that's irrelevant in this sense. Now, there was no windup, but Bertuzzi definitely pushes the puck towards the the net he pushes it forward maybe that's where we need to use the phrase push versus kick because this was deemed a good goal here it was and i know he was in the process of stopping so it it makes me think back to the prior rule when deflections were allowed in for a player who didn't turn his skate or was in the process of stopping he certainly was stopping but you could see his skate lift at the last second there to uh what appeared to me be an active deflection to make sure the puck went in. He wasn't just taking a chance that the puck would bounce off his skates. He was aiming, shoveling, shifting his weight to give it a little a little push there, frankly. And we've seen that goals are able to be deflected in. They are able to be pushed in, provided there's no distinct kicking motion. So we didn't see a backswing. We didn't see a follow through. We didn't see him take that soccer style kick. So this one was allowed to stand. Important to note, Todd, if it were determined to be a distinct kicking motion, the goal wouldn't have counted because even though it deflected off a Chicago player, that distinct kicking motion to propel the puck, even if it deflects off another player or the goaltender, would have negated the goal. So it did come down to what happened when his skate hit it and the league felt that there was no kicking motion. So consistent with what we've seen from them, that skate movement is allowed. You can intentionally move the puck. It's just where that line is on propelling the puck into the net. I'm waiting for the widespread adoption of your phrase, active deflection, because active I can see it coming. Yes, yes. We need to get the officials using that on the ice. We want these these explanations to include, it was an active deflection by Bertuzzi. All right. One other story to get to. Dallas and Columbus also had a goal reviewed. Second period of the game, Blue Jackets forward Colt Sillinger sends the puck towards the net. It was initially ruled a good goal. Dallas analyst Daryl Ray was on it right away saying he wasn't sure that the puck had completely crossed the goal line. And when the officials reviewed it, 
it didn't make it all the way over the line. No goal. Now, this was easily visible from the overhead shot in this particular case. You can see that part of the puck is still on the goal line. What we run into sometimes is the challenge of seeing whether or not the puck went in because of equipment and sticks and players and stuff that sometimes crowd the crease. This seems like a good time to remind everyone that we have this new player and puck tracking system and we should be using this to quickly find out whether or not pucks make it into the net completely. It blows my mind, Ty, that we are so focused on the speed of the player, the speed of the shot, all of these other details and statistic measures that the league has around player tracking. But we've yet to implement the puck tracking that can actually improve the game. Just think, puck tracking, we can see the height with which a puck was deflected to know if it was above the crossbar. We have that data based on the location of the puck. Same thing with if a puck was deflected when it went over the glass and out of play to cause a penalty. Same thing with when the puck crossed the blue line to determine when they should make that call to see if the play was onside or not. And most importantly, did the puck cross the goal line? The microchips can tell us. The data can tell us. We can have it automatically trigger the goal light to know whether or not the puck went in rather than having a person who's watching it, like you said, obscured by equipment, pads, players, posts, and things like that. So to me, puck tracking will be at its finest when this is an automatic goal or no goal signal. And, and I don't know why we're not there yet, Todd. Hal, what are you doing, Hal? I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs> I know I've made some very poor decisions. Recently. Let's get to work on this, buddy. Come on, let's, <laughs> let's make it happen. That technology is your friend. Let's use it. You know it is. And, and it can be used for good or evil, or it can be used just to get data and meaningless stats, but I, I'm looking forward to the day when the NHL is using it for good and, and to help make those calls a bit more concrete and to help improve the game on the ice. And, and to me, knowing whether or not the puck crossed the line is probably number one on my list. If it's a good goal, let's make the right call. The Scouting the Refs podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off and free shipping with code REFS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code REFS. That's R-E-F-S. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. 